Hope is something we all cherish, but it's evidence that makes it real. As COVID-19 continues to spread around the world, the hope of a vaccine is slowly turning into a reality. This week, we're back with Peter Hotez to answer your questions on vaccines. He's the Dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and the co-director for the Center for Vaccine Development at the Texas Children's Hospital. He's also one of the many people involved in making a COVID vaccine right now. And that means there's no one better to help you understand more about why we vaccinate. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS class on vaccines. Considering vaccines have been with us for generations, I honestly wasn't expecting many questions. But they came in, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that most of them dealt with some major issues that you don't hear about in the daily news. It shows that vaccines are far better understood and trusted than what you might believe from those who oppose them. If you haven't listened to last week's episode with Peter Hotez, I would suggest you do so now, before we get into the questions. It was a fascinating look into the world of vaccines from one of the world's experts and also highlights the struggle we continue to fight to gain worldwide public approval in these life-saving medicines. Class is now in session. Here's your first question. We've heard a lot about vaccines being the only way we're going to get back to normal in a COVID-19 pandemic. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I hate to burst too many bubbles, but, you know, people, again, have this sort of magical thinking that if we have a vaccine, it's life gets completely back to normal. And, and I don't see it that way, especially, you know, when you look at Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine technologies that they're choosing first, they're more likely to be partially protective, not completely protective. So even when these vaccines come out, they will not be replacement technologies of existing public health control measures. We're still going to have to practice social distancing and and wearing masks and that sort of stuff until maybe next generation vaccines come along that are completely protective. So we have to think of these vaccines as a companion technology, not as a total replacement technology. And, and that's true of a lot of our new vaccines uh, coming down the pike. Uh, so, with, you know, communication is going to be really important, figuring out how we do syndromic surveillance on a larger scale, having an alert system like they do in the UK. We're still going to need to do the contact tracing and the expanded testing in the workplace and creating epidemiologic models for cities. And, you know, we're still not doing that. And that's a bit of a mystery to me why it's taken so long for for the country to organize uh, an adequate health system to combat this epidemic. Was there a SARS vaccine that sat on a shelf? Yeah, we had, uh, there'd been several SARS vaccines that had been developed, including one in our lab. And uh, we had it manufactured uh, through NIH funding at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. It's a great vaccine in the lab and laboratory animals. Uh, but we, we can never get the funding after that to move it into uh, clinical trials. And so one of the two vaccines that we're accelerating is actually the SARS vaccine, repurposing it for SARS-2 because there's a high degree of similarity. Uh, but, you know, that is the reality. Uh, you know, during when after SARS in 2003, uh, we developed our vaccines. There were also a couple that even went into clinical trials. But 
there wasn't that sense of urgency that we needed to do something about it. And again, this is the problem with uh, the you know developing vaccines. Our technology, our capability to make vaccines has outpaced our scientific infrastructure and policy that we have not yet shaped around ensuring that these vaccines get fully developed and provided to the people who need them the most. Back in the previous pandemic, 2009-2010, H1N1, when a vaccine was available, we saw lots of long lines in the news reports. What do you anticipate will happen when we have the COVID-19 vaccine in terms of uptake? Yeah, I'm very worried about that. There's some recent surveys conducted by Reuters and the Associated Press, and I think the Washington Post put one out that show that up to half of people will not, in the U.S., will not take the COVID-19 vaccine, even if it's made available. And and unfortunately, a lot of that is a self-inflicted wound. It happened because, you know, we have a very aggressive anti-vaccine movement uh, in the United States, especially here in Texas. And you would have thought that once uh, people saw COVID-19 coming down the pike and wanted a vaccine, that the anti-vaccine movement treat or hiding, unfortunately, quite the opposite has happened because of the Operation Warp Speed messaging, you know, the anti-vaccine lobby, you know, in addition to claiming vaccines cause autism, and I've spent a good part of my life refuting that and even wrote the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, which has made me sort of public enemy number one. They call me the OG villain, the original gangster villain. Uh, You know, and what they assert is vaccines cause autism, which I've been debunking that, but then they claim vaccines are rushed or not adequately tested for safety. And there is a uh, a conspiratorial relationship between the uh, vaccine industry and uh, the pharma companies and the government. Guess what's been going on, you know, between Operation Warp Speed messages, the terrible press releases by some of the biotechs saying they have a vaccine in days to weeks, and then, you know, on the news, you hear about some of the biotechs dumping their stock to get quick profit after hyping it or uh, conflicts of interest or, uh, you know, a lot of the other things going on. This has had a very detrimental effect. And now we're paying for that and we've got to do damage control and I hope we can fix it. Can you tell us the difference between elimination and eradication, and which one do you think we'll be able to do with COVID-19? Well, eradication is just that. It's wiping the virus off the planet, and that's what happened with smallpox, uh, which is the only disease we've ever eradicated. And even then, there's stocks of virus still in various freezers all over the world, uh, uh, in part because people are some some looking at this for biodefense purposes and, and other things. And then eliminating it, mean, it means different things to different people. And some it means uh, reducing the level of infection below the point where you can have ongoing transmission. Other people use the term elimination as a public health problem. And this has happened for polio in most countries, except for a, a couple of them. Uh, again, we haven't reached elimination targets for many diseases. Uh, and we think a vaccine, for instance, our vaccine for schistosomiasis could be helpful for that and others. And uh, with COVID-19, I don't think we're even close to thinking about that uh, right now. It would be just a matter of getting this disease 
under a certain level of control with, with vaccination. So we're about two or three degrees separation from away from ever even considering elimination. And we'll see if that's even possible with the virus that's quite transmissible, especially with all those asymptomatic individuals transmitting virus, uh, it may make elimination not possible. Can we look to some of the vaccines of the past to give us an idea as to what might be the best strategy? I guess the most recent example would be, say, Ebola and the idea of ring vaccination. Yeah, I think that's going to be an important strategy. Uh, you know, the thing about Ebola, though, it made it easier is if you had Ebola, you knew it, right? It wasn't subtle. You know, we saw this experience with polio for every every case of acute flaccid paralysis from polio. There were about 100 other kids that had the virus, but were shedding virus or asymptomatic. So it made ring vaccination really problematic. And that's why we still haven't quite eliminated polio. And the, probably the same is going to be true of COVID-19. Now, if people want to get more information about vaccines, the testing of vaccines, how they're made, uh, or even about your own history uh, as, as I say, the guru of vaccines, where can they go? Well, I wouldn't call myself the guru. There's lots of gurus and uh, and a lot of my mentors are still alive. So, uh, so I don't, well, you know, there's a lot of places. Uh, well, first of all, I like to write books and, uh, and so you can read about the whole, uh, this very interesting connection between our work on neglected diseases and vaccines. The first book I wrote was called Forgotten People, Forgotten Diseases. My kids used to call it Dad's Forgotten Book on Forgotten People with Forgotten Diseases, but now it's in its second edition and then Blue Marble Health, and then Vaccines Not Cause Rachel's Autism, and now this new one, Preventing the Next Pandemic. And in between, we have the instant book. So go to the Johns Hopkins University Press uh, website for that, or you can go to my Twitter site, at Peter Hotez, and it's got all, all my good reads uh, on there. Uh, but there's some great source, there's some great websites for vaccines. The CDC website is actually terrific for information, but it's not easy to mine if you're not uh, scientists or professional. So I like going to vaccines.gov, the government website. Uh, the uh, Vaccinate Your Family is a nonprofit uh, website. Uh, the Vaccine Education Center for Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And now I've made the mistake of starting to name some, and I'm going to leave some important ones out, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, those are some of the some of the good ones. So there's a lot of good information. The problem is it's uh totally uh they, they it tends these are they send good messages but they tend to be a message in a bottle in the atlantic ocean because of all the vast amount of misinformation more than four uh being messaged on more than 480 anti-vaccine websites all wrapped up on in social media the amazon site is basically an anti-vaccine site if you go to amazon and put in books up at the top and press return, you'll get a scroll down menu at the left with health, fitness, and dieting. Click on that again, you get vaccinations, and you get all fake anti-vaccine books. So this, we're in a, we're talking about, we're losing the info wars, if you want to use that term. A few people have asked a question that deals with a major concern, not just with vaccines, but also your grocery store. It's known as the cold chain, and for anyone who loves fish, it's a process we rely on, without knowing much about it. 
What we do know is that there are items that we use in everyday life that must remain cold or frozen. The cold chain ensures that the temperature of anything that's perishable is maintained at a certain level to preserve quality and safety. There are several stages of the cold chain, starting at the producer or manufacturer, or cold ocean fisher. It goes to the distributor, followed by large depots or warehouses. Eventually, it goes to the provider, which could be a grocery store, or, if we're talking about a vaccine, a doctor's office. And don't forget the transportation that happens between these stops. At every step, the product must be kept at a certain temperature. And the lower the requirement, the harder the logistics. Now, as you can imagine, it's quite the effort to make any cold chain work. You can even take a course on it. And you can even join an international association devoted to these cold chain logistics. When it comes to a vaccine, and this is where the question comes into play, it seems that most need some kind of cold chain, whether it happens to be four degrees Celsius, the temperature inside your refrigerator, minus 20 degrees Celsius, like your chest freezer, or minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is better known as ultra-low temperature, achievable only with specialized equipment. During research and development, vaccines are tested for their ability to stay potent over a long period of time. Many different temperatures are tested, and one comes out a winner. You can predict that temperature to some extent, as vaccines are biological in nature and follow the same principles as, say, fish caught in the ocean. If you want it fresh, you keep it cold. Now granted, at 4 degrees Celsius, as we all know, it only lasts a few days. To keep it longer, you need to go down to minus 20, where it can last for a year or two. Then there are the vaccines that are more advanced and require much lower temperatures to stay active. You've probably heard about one such example as the hunt for a vaccine progresses. Now that doesn't mean it won't be stable at higher temperatures. It's just that it is guaranteed to be stable in the ultra-low range. So what does that mean for you during rollout when you are asked to roll up your sleeve? Nothing, really. The vaccines and development to protect you against the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus come in a variety of different formulations that can be stored anywhere from minus 70 to room temperature. All you need to do is await the word from your local public health officials and you'll be able to get in line, get your shot, and do your part to help put an end to this pandemic. And there you have it. I want to thank everyone who asked a question for Peter Hotez, and I hope that you have gained further insight and trust in vaccines. If you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at JATetro or sending me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you want to leave a voice message, just head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and leave me a voice message. It could be a question, a show idea, or maybe even just to say hello. And you too can be part of a future SAS class. Next week, we're going to be talking about one subject that is far too important and yet seems to be missed by so many. Grief. You know you are not going to want to miss this one. And that's why it's best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us because it does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. And we are a part of the Curious Cast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. 
And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Peter Hotez. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Stay safe. Keep the faith in those vaccines. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. <laughs>